Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Today we have a tale of two things, one that is interesting and one that is boring. Uh, Have you guys ever seen like a kid be bored before? It is like murder for them, right? Like they just absolutely cannot handle it, which is a strange thing when you think about it because kids start off just sort of like like trying to stay alive, right? Like it's just a struggle for survival is all the kids are doing when they're little babies. They're just like, I need to eat. I need to like stay alive. And if I can get food into or out of me, then I'll be reasonably happy. Then they get like a little bit older and then everything in the world is magical. They might unroll a whole roll of toilet paper or think that like the vacuum cleaner is a monster, right? Like everything is fascinating for a little while. And then they get a little bit older than that and they hit this point where they start getting bored. It's like someone is actively torturing them, right? They're like moping around. They're like saying, I'm bored. They mope around the house. They sit wrong on the furniture. Have you ever seen that? Like a kid, like legs up on the couch, head facing down, thinking like, if I can just see the world differently, maybe it'll be interesting to me. They're like, mom, entertain me. I'm so bored. Sarah always says to Evie, actually, boredom spurs creativity. And Evie says, thanks, right? (laughs) Like that doesn't help at all when I'm like crazy bored. Anyway, then kids grow a little bit older, and they learn how to entertain themselves. They get friends. They get phones. They get video games. Who knows what it is? And they find, them, find ways to, like, maybe fix some of their boredom. Then they grow a little bit older, and they, you know, grow up, become adults, move out, get new friends, get a job, start, like, doing all the things. And then all of a sudden, they're bored again, right? That's currently the phase of life that I'm at right now, right? It's like you had that early stage of boredom, and then you have this, like, uh, I don't know if it's midlife crisis stage of boredom. I'm not really sure what it is yet. Am I at the midlife yet? I don't even know. My life might be pretty short. I don't know. Anyway, uh, has anybody else ever gotten bored? Am I the only one that has been bored? You guys are not nodding your heads at all. Like, you guys are all like, no, my life is interesting. Your life is terrible. I'm sorry for you, Josh. This is sad. No, I get bored. It's not from a lack of things to do either. Like, I remember I had a 14-hour day one day this summer, and I was literally in the middle of it, and I was thinking to myself, like, wow, I don't think I've ever had this much to do and been this bored at the same time. And then I thought, that is a new and interesting thought. And for a little bit, I was, like, slightly less bored in that moment, right? Uh, Because in that moment, I had discovered something new. And I had no reason to be bored, right? Like, I have a great life, a great family that I enjoy a lot. Sarah is interesting. We do cool stuff together. Evie is growing and changing all the time. Uh, We have a foster daughter who keeps us busy. I have a good job that I love. It's always interesting and different. Uh, I have friends, and I live in a cool city, and I have interesting hobbies, and there are good movies and books that are out there that I haven't seen or watched yet or read yet. Uh, There's more TV out there in the world, good TV even, than like one human being can like watch in one lifetime now. We should not be bored. I should not be bored. Life should be interesting enough, but it is not. So today I started thinking about why. Uh, I have two theories, if you'll bear with me a little bit longer for my rant about boredom. First, your life is boring. That's right, I put it on a slide in hopes that one day someone would look back at their notes from today and be like, oh, my life is boring. Thanks, Josh. Pastor Josh, appreciate that. Anyway, this is a real possibility. The pull of the mundane is strong and it is real. Imagine this scenario. 
come home from your job as the assistant lead internal financial auditor at the company that makes personalized name license plate keychains, and you find out that someone has stolen your credit card, which means that you must spend the next 20 minutes online trying to convince that company that you're in fact not a robot. Then you spend three hours on the phone tree because you've given up on that, and you sit on the phone while you eat microwavable rice and drink a can of LaCroix whose flavor is described as pure. All right, now that was officially the most like boring uh, life that I could possibly imagine. Oh, did I mention that you're watching C-SPAN while all this is happening, right? Like this is the absolute epitome of boredom. Now your life is not that boring, right? Like that is like bottom of the barrel, absolutely boring. But very few of us live a life that is like much more interesting than that. Like none of us are getting chased by a lion, right? Like none of us are having to like fight for our own existence. Uh, none of us are hunting for our own food. None of us are saving lives or trying to put a man on the moon, right? Like, modern living is just kind of boring by comparison to the rest of human existence. There is something different about you today than every other human that has lived before you in the way that, like, your life has a tendency to be boring. We thought that cell phones and indoor plumbing would free us up to do more interesting things, and the sad thing that we realized is there's nothing else to do. We're like, oh. I guess I'll scroll on my phone a little bit, right? We started doing things for fun that other people used to do because they had to. We jump out of airplanes, yeah, right, like 19-year-olds did in World War II, you know? Like that was, they did it because they, want, they had to. We do it because we think it'd be fun. Uh, we go and face the Rocky Mountain wilderness and brave the elements just like the Donner Party. Like imagine if they were like, oh, you're going camping this weekend. Ah, I see, interesting, that'll be fun. We play paintball so we know what it's like to kill a man and to think you're going to die without all that messy blood and existential angst, right? These are the things that we do to keep our lives more interesting, but at the end of the day, they are boring. Another theory as to why we're bored all the time is that your life is too interesting. Simultaneously, somehow, in the biggest paradox of all time, our life is too interesting. You can know right now about like wildfires in Hawaii. You can know about Russian mercenary leaders and their plane mysteriously going down. You can learn about how the government is covering up an alien invasion all through the click of a button, just on your phone. This is stuff that you can experience by proxy. But you can also experience some things in a semi kind of real way, right? Like you can play a game where you fly or where you hunt through the jungle or where you smack a cartoon monkey with a hammer. Uh, you can listen to almost any music ever created. You don't even have to be in the same room as the person creating the music. That's crazy. You can watch a video of what it's like to live in Bali or what it's like to work on an oil rig. Like you can experience all of these things sort of in an adjacent way. And this makes us so different from every other human that lived before us because we have this strange pseudo-access to all of life at once, and it makes us bored with the life that we currently have. Think of it this way. If you, someone hands you a piece of pineapple, you're like, oh, thanks, man. Appreciate that. And you pop it in your mouth. You don't think anything of it. But imagine, just a few hundred years ago, if you were Christopher Columbus who I know is evil now, I'm sorry, we're indigenous people, people here, right? So Christopher Columbus, he shows up to Guadalupe, he finds this fruit, this magical like fruit that's kind of spiky on the outside and kind of difficult to eat. He brings it back to Europe and people would completely lose their minds for the next 300 years. The pineapple would become a symbol of wealth and prosperity for even having it. There were probably people living in Europe at that time 
They would like come back to their friends and be like, hey man, I saw a pineapple today. And their friends would be like, no, you didn't. You're lying. I don't think that that's true. And he's like, no, I did. Louis XV rode by on this like, you know, big like chariot thing and he had one. I promise he had one. And then somebody's like, I don't even think pineapples are a real thing, man. I think somebody made them up. It's a big conspiracy, right? That's how crazy it is. And for us, we use it as a garnish, right? We are so impressed and interested in everything that we are not interested in anything. Now, if you're wondering how Josh's 10-minute depressing rant about how boring life is uh, is going to connect with the text, or if you're just bored right now, uh, then you're on the right track, all right? Because I think uh, what happens in our text today that Danielle just read, and you might have been listening to her, you might have been checking your phone, you might have been thinking about what you're going to have for lunch, I think what she just read was actually one of the top ten most interesting things that has ever happened in the history of humanity forever and ever for all time. It is called the Transfiguration. After six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. This is a big deal. Doesn't even like imagining this for just half a moment, like putting yourself in this environment, like in, in your imagination, like... Doesn't it like break the monotony of our boring lives, even just for like a brief glimpse? Like, can you imagine being here, being like one of the disciples watching Jesus and his face shining like the sun and his clothes becoming white? I did a little bit of research in preparation for this and discovered that people glowing was not a common occurrence back then. In fact, it's just about as common as today, right? All right. So I did some deep biblical research. That wasn't a common thing. And we just read right past it. Neither was talking to people that had been dead for a thousand years. I also think it's interesting, Moses and Elijah are kind of interesting choices here. Like, why those two guys? Jesus could have talked to anybody that had ever died before. Uh, <clears throat> Moses, obviously, was the guy who got the Ten Commandments. He freed Israel from slavery, led them to the Promised Land. Uh, Elijah was a prophet to the people of Israel around 900 years before this. And the only real connection with these two men that I can really discern as it pertains to this particular story is that they both had interactions with God on mountains. Moses on Mount Sinai when he received the Ten Commandments. Elijah when he saw God pass him on Mount Horeb. I don't want to get too like you know interstellar and weird on this whole thing. But what if in that moment, this is what I like really got stuck thinking about, and I think this is interesting. What if in that moment that they were actually standing on their mountains, they were like participating somehow in this moment at the same time, right? I don't want to, like I said, we're not going to go into black holes and string theory or anything like that. But isn't that fascinating that the thing that connects all three of these guys in this one particular moment is that they had an opportunity to, to interact with God on top of a mountain. If anyone else wants to get into like wild conjectures and fan theories like that, uh, you can read these in Exodus 24 and 1 Kings 19. I also want to make a theologically dubious commercial for Colorado, for those of you guys who think about ever leaving. Uh, we have a lot of mountains here. God seems to do cool stuff on mountains. Uh, sure, you could move to Missouri if you wanted to, but uh, you're putting your life in your hands there. I think you're going to interact with God a whole lot less. Anyway, commercial over. The only way that this event could have been more shocking is if there was actually a pineapple here. P. 
Peter serves as us, right? Like he is the normal person. He is the human in the scenario. He's the one that is reacting to all of this. It says this in verse 4, And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Peter kind of sounds like he's had a little bit too much to drink here. It's kind of like the, the weird way that I, I think I want to read this, right? He's like, man, it is good to be here, you know, like, because you guys are cool, and I'm cool, and you're my best friend, and this is the best day ever. Oh, and this guy, who is this guy, Elijah? I'm going to call him Big E, right? And we should just we should just live here. Like, what if we all lived here? I'm going to set up a tent. Does anybody want a tent? You want a tent? I'll get you a tent, right? No, I don't think he was drunk. I think he was just, like, shocked, right? Like, in this moment, he, like, cannot contain what is happening, which you would be the same way, right? Like, what if you were just hanging out one day, and all of a sudden, I was like, hey, man, let's just go up on the side of this mountain. You're like, all right, that sounds cool. And I was like, do you mind if Abraham Lincoln and Christopher Columbus join us? Would that be interesting? And you're like, okay, right? Like, this might be the same way that you react. You don't know how to, like, talk about it or think about it. Sort of like someone talking after a train crash or a tornado, right? Like, some things are too big for your mind to even contain. And as he was coming up with this tent plan, he gets interrupted by the voice of God. The voice of God interrupts him. Verse 5, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. I'm going to ask you one more time to just put yourself in the shoes of Peter here. He went from saying like, hey, we should just set up tents here. We should live here. We should make something of this moment to on his face, terrified. Like it's easy to read this and think of it like almost like you're reading Shakespeare or something like that. And you're like, ah, oh, yeah, that's like a goofy thing that somebody would do like a way to describe being scared that you'd like fall on your face terrified. Can you imagine the like emotions that would be going through you that would cause you to lay on your face terrified? These guys were scared, scared enough to bury their faces in the ground. Then Jesus goes on to tell them that he'll be raised from the dead and that John the Baptist is some sort of like strange echo of their prophet, prophet Elijah who they just saw in the flesh glowing right in front of them. This, this was a weird night. This was one of the craziest things to ever happen to human beings in the history of the world. And it was definitely not boring. Here's what I think. <clears throat> I think that there's a potential that one of the biggest reasons why our lives are so boring is because we don't have moments like this, or maybe we don't appreciate them, or maybe we even like want them to be like our life all the time. We think that's our only hope for having a non-boring life. But I think this very event can tell us a couple things about what it looks like to live a life that is transfigured. A life that is more than just your average comings and goings. first thing that the story teaches us is that transfigured moments don't last long. 
By transfigured moments, I mean those moments when you actually get to interact with God, that moment where he like meets you in a certain place in a certain time. Because here in this story, in this transfigured moment, it looks like at first glance that Peter is saying like, hey, what if we turn this meeting into a camp out? What if we just stay here forever? Now he might be saying that, uh, but also tents were very like uh, important to the history of Israel uh, because back in the day when they were traveling around in the wilderness, uh, actually when Moses was their leader, they would set up these tents and they would call them tabernacles and they were kind of like mobile temples. So Peter might have been saying, hey, why don't we spend the night here? But he could have also been saying, hey, why don't we turn this into a shrine? Like, why don't we make this the new temple? God is here. He is speaking to us. He has Moses and Elijah and Jesus all here. Let's just put up a structure to make this a little bit more permanent. But God stepped in. And it's interesting, too, that it says that God steps in and interrupts him with the shroud of cloud, right? Like it was like filling the entire mountaintop with smoke. He kind of like built them into a tabernacle in that moment. Tabernacles and temples would have been filled with lots of smoke from like the burning of incense and the burning of sacrifices. Also, a pillar of smoke uh, was how God spoke to Moses uh, back when he was giving him uh, the Ten Commandments, when he was leading the people of Israel. If you think about it, this combined with the weird like John the Baptist slash Eliza connection, it's making this moment into like this nexus of the universe, right? Like all of these forces are meeting together on this one moment in this one mountain uh, for this one place in time. But God stopped Peter and basically said, there's no time to turn this into a shrine. This is one moment. One brief thing that is good, but it's temporary. This is something that we hate about life, right? That good things don't last long. Nothing good lasts forever. Or maybe more clearly, nothing good lasts as long as you wish that it would. But it's true of everything, right? Like you're eating a meal and you want that last bite to just last forever and ever. Maybe you've just like won some sort of big important game or contest or something like that. And you think, I just want to move into this moment and live it over and over again for the rest of my life. But it doesn't work that way. And apparently that is a natural thing. Like that's how God designed life. C.S. Lewis calls this the law of undulation. In the book Screwtape Letters, he refers to it as, uh, as that law of undulation, meaning that like life has its ups and downs. It's just the natural way that life works. In the book, two demons discuss the best way to take advantage of and control human beings. The older demon coaches the younger to convince his human uh, that this isn't a natural thing, that his troughs and peaks are somehow symptoms of something being wrong, not just life being normal. Screwtape says this, let him assume that the first ardours of his conversion might have been expected to last, that ought to have lasted forever, and that his present dryness is an equally permanent condition. Basically saying like, hey, it's a good thing. It's going to give you power over the human being that you're trying to sway away from God. If you can convince that human being that his, you know, supposed interaction with God or conversion to Christianity, that those was that was actually just a random high and that now he's going to be spiritually dry for the rest of his life. When in reality, life works on this kind of undulating scale, right? Like it just goes up and it goes down. So for Peter to look at this transfigured moment and say like, hey, why can't we stay here? God immediately reacts with, that's not the way that the world works. It is brief. It is temporary. Up and downs in life are natural. 
and transcendent, transfigured experiences are temporary. Maybe that should tell us a couple of things. First, if we try and extend amazing, powerful, transcendent moments in our life all the time, it's going to be disappointing. If we just try and perpetuate it, it's not going to work out for us, right? It won't actually lead us to a more joy-filled life. There's a lot of movements in Christianity uh, that are always like pushing towards living this like life of extreme emotional highs all the time, right? And we do all of this stuff to try and like craft that. I'm sure you've been to like, you know, some sort of like gathering of Christians where we're trying to like raise the emotional stakes all the time and we're trying to like basically manufacture a feeling of a transcendent experience with God, but ultimately it ends up just being that. It's not real. And to fake it is just going to make us more dissatisfied in the end. Second thing that it shows us is the way that God chooses to operate in our lives. Now, this is an interesting thing if you think about it, that there was only one transfiguration that ever happened, right? And Peter here is saying, like, hey, let's, let's keep this going. Let's push it longer. God says no. It shows us that sometimes God works in the ecstatic and wild experiences in our life where we're like knocked off our feet, where we're terrified, where we find ourselves weeping and confused and excited, but sometimes it doesn't happen and it never lasts forever. This is how God chooses to work in our lives. So if you've ever had this moment that was like this crazy high where you feel like you're interacting directly with God and then the next week that is not happening, you may be tempted to feel like something is wrong with me, I've broken something, I've lost something, I am not the same person that I was in that moment. But actually, it's natural. Actually, it's normal. I remember when I was 15, and I feel like I had a, a genuine interaction with God. I was in a worship gathering, and the gathering, like, ended, and I was just sort of, like, stapled to my seat. I was, like, weeping in my seat. I felt like I was, like, hearing the voice of God, or at least what was the closest experience to that that I've ever had. That I was communing somehow with the supernatural. I can tell you that like not a year later, I remember feeling like I was like abandoned by God. Because basically I was like comparing my everyday living and breathing kind of experience to that very moment. And I felt like God had just abandoned me. Like he had written me off. He was like, yeah, I interacted with you that once and that was all that you'll ever get. And now it's just silence for me. Looking back now, I realize that the height of the experience makes the trough feel that much deeper. Like the closer that you get to God, the more that you're able to interact with him, the deeper the trough feels the next time that you're down in the valley. That I actually might have been like closer to God before. I believe that there than I was before that experience. I believe that I was, but because of how high and how close on the mountaintop I felt in that one moment, now when I was brought down to the trough, I feel like I was further than I ever was. There are going to be times in your life and in your walk with Jesus and your journey with Jesus where it's going to feel like you are close to him. The supernatural interacts with your life. That he transforms you, that he uses you in a powerful and amazing way. But it won't last forever. A reaction to this is that, for a few things really, that we shouldn't try and force it. We shouldn't try and fake it in any way. We shouldn't accept some sort of counterfeit experience just because it feels right. 
We should also not expect the mountaintop to be the same every time. God works and moves in different ways. Very often we can let our expectations of how we want to hear from God, how we expect to hear from God, uh, keep us from actually hearing him. And finally, we have to find some sort of way to experience joy in the mundane, ongoing, everyday, in and out, undulating life of following Jesus. So seek it out. Embrace it fully when you find it. The last takeaway we have from this interesting story is that in some ways, God is intentionally elusive. God is difficult to pin down. He is difficult to to understand completely. He is difficult uh, for us to be able to completely find. And I believe that this is an intentional choice on his part. What's so beautiful and strange about this story is how little we know about it. Like, don't you have like a million questions? Don't you leave this story with like more questions than answers? You're like, what was the point of all of this? What are we even talking about here? Like, what's the takeaway for our lives? Why Moses? Why Elijah? Why not David or Abraham or Adam? What did Jesus' face look like? What does it mean to glow? What, what did his clothes look like? What did God's voice sound like? All of these things are questions that we take away from this very story. And God does not tell us. There's a lot of stories in Scripture like this that leave us with more questions than answers. And we think to ourselves, like, wow, that is really, really interesting, but I really want to know more. What this tells us is that I think, I hope this isn't shocking, but God isn't telling us everything. There are some things that he intentionally does not let us know. As much as we might want to know them, as much as we want to have these questions answered, God does not tell us everything. He doesn't tell us where he came from or what our limitations are in terms of like what is free will and what is not. He didn't tell us why he chose to make the world this way. He didn't tell us, you know, if he can make a burrito too hot for him to eat. Whatever it is that your big question about God is, like he doesn't tell us the answer. God has intentionally made himself difficult for us to understand. Even throughout history and even throughout scripture, though it does tell us a whole lot about God, still leaves some pieces that he doesn't reveal. And throughout scripture, we see every story, he only reveals a piece of himself at any given time. He lets his people find faith in the not knowing. He lets them find purpose and meaning in seeking to understand and know him. I have a theory that that's actually purposeful. That maybe life was meant to be a hunt. Maybe we were always meant to seek after God, never fully finding him, never fully knowing him, but always pushing further to know and understand him better. Maybe we were designed to be seekers and God is actually the greatest quarry. Maybe the mystery is actually a blessing for us and for our good and for our benefit. If our hearts and our minds were made to love a mystery and a quest, then ultimately your soul will only find satisfaction in seeking after its maker. We as human beings love 
mystery. It may frustrate us a little bit. We may say, we may think to ourselves that we don't love it, but at the end of the day, like the most interesting and compelling things in life are always a little bit mysterious, right? That's why we like mysteries in books and movies. It's why we're reading all 6,000 Agatha Christie novels, right? Like it's why uh, we're constantly looking for that big plot twist, that big change. It's why we love surprise parties. It's why we love working towards something, not knowing whether or not we're going to get it. It's why we spend so much of our life seeking new information, seeking new experiences, seeking new things because of the unknown of it all. So it would follow then that the God of the universe, who is also our creator, probably hardwired us to desire that and then made himself the greatest thing that we could seek after. In the end of uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, after everything's over, Sorry, there's some spoilers here if you haven't read it yet. Uh, it's been out for 60, 80, 100 years now. So uh, you should probably read it. So anyway, um, Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. Uh, Aslan dies, comes back to life. Everything's good. And then we're left with the, the kids all just sort of like hanging out. It fast forward like 20 years, you know. They're all just like living the high life, being kings and queens and everything like that. And then what happens? They go and they chase the white stag. And I did a little bit of like research into this. Apparently the white stag is like this like uh, common figure in literature. Uh, it was very common in like Arthur, King Arthur, Arthurian legends and stuff like that, right? Uh, and it was this symbol for this like thing that you would quest after but never be able to catch, never be able to find. And that's exactly what happens in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The kids start running after the white stag. Uh, all of a sudden they find the lamppost, they find the, the wardrobe, and they stumble back into the real world and they're kids again. And they probably have a lot of trauma from living, you know, 60 years as adults and then uh, being forced to be children again. Anyway, I don't want to get into that too much. What's fascinating to me about this particular moment in time, as le at least as C.S. Lewis puts it, is that they had this whole, like, grand adventure chasing after God uh, they meet Aslan, they get to understand his sacrifice for them, they come to know who Aslan slash Jesus is, and then what are they supposed to do for the rest of their lives? What's their response then? I'm sure they do a lot of sitting on the throne, they do all of that jazz, but then they also have the hunt, seeking after the white stag, chase through the forest of this thing that you'll never quite catch. I believe that this is the invitation that God gives to each and every one of us. That he reveals himself to us. That Jesus dies on the cross for our sins and when we accept this gift of grace from him, we get to then spend the rest of our lives chasing hard after him. Seeking after him. And that in a lot of ways, this is the only antidote to the boring lives that we live. That we might seek him out. That we might seek him out in the extreme and the ecstatic situations, like the mountaintop experiences. That we might seek him out in the mundane and the boring. That we might seek him out in the daily routines and that we might seek him out on the mountaintop. That we might seek him in the mountain and the valley. That we might seek him always and forever constantly chasing to know, to understand, to love, to experience him more, and always getting closer and closer, but never quite completely getting there, at least here on earth. 
That is my invitation to you. That is my invitation to me. Especially when we find this life too, too grueling, too boring, too mundane. That the hunt for God is always there. Would you guys pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, God, I ask, God, that you might allow us to continue seeking hard after you. God, that you might meet us in the mountaintops, that you might show your transformed and transfigured face to us, God. That you might show yourself to be more uh, than our minds could possibly contain or hold, God, and that you might meet us there, God. But that you might also give us, uh, God, the passion, the zeal, the faith to chase after you when we're not on the mountain. God, be our greatest adventure, be our greatest quest. Be the quarry that our hearts are constantly seeking after, God. Be the greatest uh, quest of our lives, God. That is what we want to spend our lives doing, is chasing hard after you, God. God, we thank you for being who you are and for loving us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.